This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Coming up in just a minute is a conversation with Bob Coons from Highland Park Brewing. But first, we'd like to thank the sponsors for this episode, starting with G&D Chillers. As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on custom, innovative solutions that match brewing customers' immediate and future needs. Whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge and think outside the box. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked at the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and packed for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com forward slash beer. That's perfectpuree.com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. And now... Time for some conversation and beers. Hey everybody, it's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I'm in Los Angeles at the relatively newly opened second location for Highland Park Brewing Company, and sitting across from me is the brewer, founder, general creative thought, Bob Coons. Hello. Thanks for doing this. Ah, my pleasure. My Did pleasure. I get your name right? You got it right, All right. Bob Coons. There it is. I have to, I have to practice uh, uh, these things as I'm doing them. Um, so tell me a little bit about this location that we're in right now. Um, so we are in uh, Chinatown, which is essentially in downtown Los Angeles or adjacent to downtown Los, An- uh, downtown Los Angeles. Uh, this specific location where we are is pretty awesome. We're kind of on the outskirts of Chinatown um, and in an area that the city of L.A. was kind of trying to redevelop. So um, we actually signed our lease and kind of got started on this project before there was anything. And now sitting in our tasting room, you can look out and see that we're kind of frontage to a massive state park. And there is the, you know, the train whizzing by, stopping a block from here. Um, But yeah, we're uh, kind of in the heart heart of LA. Um, We're in an industrial zone, but we're on a park, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, And the area in general, um, it's zoned to allow for residential, commercial, and industrial. So for us, that's awesome. It means we can brew beer, we can sell beer direct to consumer, and there's going to be people living within the vicinity of us that will treat us like their local watering hole. And so it's cool to be in now before a lot of that happens as well. You can kind of get a feel for the place and then be that first welcoming spot when, when, when people come in. We've already, we've already felt it. I mean, it's actually funny getting to like the... like monetary side of things yeah we signed our lease the front portion of our space which is six thousand square feet and a year later when we started construction we realized we needed more space and the rent had doubled in that year time (laughs) and it had doubled because i I, you know we're an anchor tenant here for a new developing area so it's like we caused ourselves to have to pay more rent (laughs) 
Um, but th- you know, this being the second location, though, and I visited your 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 first location uh, just just the other day. Uh, radically different, like two very different uh, vibes, places. Um, you know, I mean, the beer is great, but um, you know, I walked in here and it's not at all what your first place is like. Well, I will say, just it, it's you know, in opening a brewery had been a long time pursuit, and I moved to Highland Park in 2010. And Highland Park uh, didn't have a whole lot of craft beer. And the guys, uh, uh, there are three gentlemen who opened up the Hermosillo. Um, so they opened up the Hermosillo in, I think, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is actually a, a fully separate company. Okay. So that was an existing bar um, and just a rad little neighborhood kind of dive bar, but focused on quality product and kind of comfortable, like cantina vibe or something. Um, but I loved bellying up to the bar. I became friends with the owners of the Hermosillo and they basically said, we know you're trying to open up a brewery. Maybe you could do it under the same roof. We have 500 square feet behind our bar that we're not using. Um, and kind of set out from there. So, uh, so it was you putting your brewery into an existing space. And so, well, I guess when it came sort of time to come here, like this is your fully executed vision of what yes. you want for it. And, and what I'm sort of struck in, and I've had your beers before and, uh, you know, experimental and you do a lot of the, you know, the, the mixed culture fermentation stuff, but a lot, also a lot of, uh, you know, great pilsners, lagers. Um, and this kind of feels like your beer in a lot of ways. Uh, this this tap room and and I'm seeing that sort of more and more. But I wonder if if that it, it, like how much does the beer play into what you wanted the aesthetics of this place to be? Uh, I mean that's an interesting thing. I think sometimes like <laughs> life has a way of like taking form based on like who you are and what you sort of stand for. Or yeah. Like so, I I don't think it's as intentional that like okay this is what the beer is this is what the space is going to be and it might just be more a natural extension of i mean i've been pursuing beer my entire life and you know thinking about places where would i want to drink beer what does this like feel like am i comfortable do i want to have another pint and then i mean with the beer itself that that's an an extension of of me (laughs) and so i i think it's maybe not as calculated but just a natural like path that the space and beer has taken, um, and the people that 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 I've sur- been surrounded by. I mean, the guys who did the design and layout of this are really good friends of mine. I've known them for you know ten years, and I think it's that they. It took us a while to see what that vision was, but we came to this place that you know we kind of not being super clear here, but... <laughs> no, 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 but... I, I think it is an interesting observation, and it's something that I was actually just thinking about this week of how important I think it is for beer. And this is kind of zone, zooming back a little okay. bit and looking at a bigger vision. But beer, to me, is... Uh, like it's so important that it that we have good culture and that we're forward thinking and that we're thinking about innovation and we're thinking about uh, ways that we are informed outside of beer to better our beer experience, better our beer. So to me, it's like I don't just drink beer. I'm huge into 
wine, spirits, anything that's out there that I can get my hands on, I'm trying to experience. So kind of blabbering on here, no, no, but no, I but think I, I, that I, I, it's a, a point it. that's important for me is that I that we're informed by the world around us and that we're exploring the world around us and then taking that back to the experience of what is like what is the drinking experience in our bar? What is the the beers we're putting on the wall? How do they how are they some sort of unique expression that's, you know, both informed by things of the past and pushing pushing forward to like what the future holds and what, what it's gonna evolve into and and you know creating experiences that challenge people to that next path and creating experiences that make them comfortable that they're willing to take those little leaps into, you know, something that's out of their comfort zone or whatever. Is there an example of a beer that you've done recently that was born out of one of these experiences? Um, <laughs> funny enough, we, uh, we just did for all of our full-time employees, we went camping on Sunday night. Uh, so two nights ago, and we have a beer that's currently in barrels. It's like a barrel fermented saison. Um, I really loved uh, some like Terrace Bulba from Brasserie de la Seine, it's a great beer. or the Table Beer mm-hmm. from the Colonel. And there are these beers that are like low ABV and have these like massive, broad, like tannic bitterness. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I've been like thinking about Alpine ingredients in beer a lot recently. Uh, but we were camping, and the campsite that we were at had all these pine trees with these massive pine cones that are like three, four, five pounds each. Really? Like some of them were as much as like ten, like 10 like, to 12 inches long. So we made this barrel. I, I don't get out into nature much, but that <laughs> sounds like frightening, actually. They're huge. Yeah. They're huge. So we... Um, could knock you out if they hit you on the head, yeah. So yeah, we're, you know, Sunday night, two nights ago, we were camping, and we had this beer, this like kind of you know, tannic, bitter, barrel-fermented Saison, mixed-culture Saison, and I've been thinking to find the right ingredient for that. Um, and we're like, these pine cones are it. It was <laughs> like right. Newton, just it falls and hits you, yeah. and there it is. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, you know, we're smelling it, and they have all this, like, cool sap coming out, and the sap is just so aromatic. But if we're not out there, like, camping in Angel's Crest Forest, which is, you know, a huge part of Los Angeles, then we couldn't take that sort of information experience and bring it back to our beer. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a perfect example, <laughs> I think. How are you going to plan on using those in the beer? Are you going to age them? Are you going to give them uh, a the, soak in Everclear or something yeah. and kill some of the bugs? Or do you want some of the bugs? Like, uh, You yeah. know what? We, we With our mixed culture beers, we kind of let them take the path that's like on that ingredient so we'll probably rinse them off and we'll probably put them in a tank purge that tank rack the barrels into the tank and it treat it like a dry hop so we'll have it on pine cones for you know a week or something like that and we'll taste to see what it's drying out okay of the of, of the pine cones gonna throw them in hole you're gonna give them a chop like what's your i think you throw them in hole okay I throw them in hole yeah <laughs> that's kind of fun all right we're gonna take a quick break Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. 
For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. We'd also like to thank the American Homebrewers Association, a community of homebrewers and an essential source for brewing tips, recipe, and homebrewing culture. They're great supporters of this magazine and podcast, and if you're not already a member, you can join at homebrewersassociation.org. So you talk about mixed uh, mixed cultures as well, and what do you guys call it? Uh, Zauza? <laughs> yeah, Yauza. Yauza. Uh, yeah, we. Um, How'd that start? Well, I I've been into beer since about 2001. And immediately upon getting into beer, I just had an adventurous palate, wanted to try anything and everything I could. Um, and, you know, the sort of like sour beers of the world are kind of the epitome of complexity. Yeah. So um, I immediately was homebrewing, trying to figure out ways to make these sour beers. Um, and probably starting in about 2006, 2007, I essentially started a mother culture. So I had... Uh, a corny keg, a soda pop keg, and every time I would have a good batch, whether it be from spontaneous or bottle dregs or, you know, lab pitches, um, essentially those dregs would go into this corny keg, and uh, that just morphed over time. The yowza that you speak of is still in that same corny keg, um, and that corny keg has actually never been cleaned out. We just basically prop it up inside of the keg okay. um, every time we're going to use it. So it's an amalgamation of a lot of things, essentially over the past 10 years of brewing for both me as a home brewer and us here commercially um, as a commercial brewer. For folks who wanted to try to do something like this, how do you recommend they go about it and then even just maintain it? I mean, you've I, had this now for, God, what, 12 years? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it's a funny approach, but honestly, Brett, to me, performs a lot better under stress. So we have gotten lab pitches and we'll like treat them like we would our clean, uh, our clean beers, like something we brew an IPA or lager with. And I have never liked the results, ever. Um, there's something to the stress on those cultures that really provides some of the coolest character and mm-hmm. kind of touch on this fringe of, of sort of like funk and must and fruit and, and all of that. So my like approach would be to uh, essentially not do a starter, not over pitch, you know, Maybe we actually store those cultures at ambient, and it's kind of a survival of the fittest. It's like the, the, the hardiest have adapted over time, and, and that's what's probably still living and breathing. The ones that can take that stress, and they tend to also provide the coolest character. So if I was a home brewer and I wanted to say, like, all right, I'm going to start up my own house culture, um, I probably would get a couple bottles of goose. I would drink those bottles of goose and leave all of set the set like an inch of sediment on the bottom of those bottles and then um, I would propagate that I would you know brew a one gallon batch of beer pitch that 
you know, inch of dregs from that goose into that keg or into that carboy or whatever um, and, and go from there. I think that those, those, uh, those bottle dregs are kind of the epitome of what I'm saying in that they've already been through a full fermentation. They're in the bottom of a bottle and they don't have food and they don't have oxygen, so they're stressed. And the ones that survived are probably going to be hardy and they're probably going to provide some pretty cool character. Probably need to do a little bit of research on what, what goose producers, you know, are like keeping them their spontaneous cultures in the bottom of their bottle versus maybe some of them, yeah. you know, repitch with something else or whatnot. So, and then once you get started, you just keep saving the sediment. Um, we do it under pressure in a corny keg, um, and that seems to uh, be the best path and we have the best results. Um, otherwise, I would probably, you know, yeah, that, that's my best path. <laughs> okay. And then it, it just seems like it, it, you're, and you're living it at ambient as well, which I find kind of interesting. Um, so what are some of the, the dominant uh, flavors and aromas that you're getting off of your strain now? Uh, our flavor and aroma wise, I think ours is very stone fruit driven. I mean, we always get big peach, nectarine, apricot. Hmm. Um, I think we get this nice kind of like mustiness, like wet wood, maybe a little bit of like sulfur in there as well. Um, our cultures have a huge, uh, uh, lactic acid bacteria component. So, you know, ours can pick up a lot of acidity if we don't add enough bitterness. <laughs> um, so I think that's a big component and is shaping where the, our cultures are evolving because I think we're continually trying to fight back that, like, high acid. Like, I, I don't want single-note acid beers. So we're kind of constantly adding more bitterness to restrain the acidity and to get a, a, a more complex finished product rather than just an acidic finished product a lot of the beers that are out there or i guess a good amount and some of the folks um you know who are making them it, it is this one note acidic uh, I'm, I'm seeing that sort of more and more um and it's you know it's our sour program you know it's supposed to be that way and it's like well not necessarily you know and it's certainly not supposed to be you know an acid program uh you know as, as it were as well where does where does balance where does complexity where does you know, nuance and not just being one note. Um, like, wh where do you see the importance in that? Um, I think drinkability. I mean, it's like I always joke, but it's like I don't want to just make festival beers, which festival beers, you're just trying to get the biggest impact. It's fast so mm -hmm. that people go, oh, shit, that was like, that was it. And then they get the bottle and they go home and they're like, wow, I can't drink I can't even share this bottle with one other person. It's too much. Right. Um, so It's too abrasive. Yeah, it's too, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think we're still trying to find our way in it, honestly. I mean, like I said, our cultures are do have a lot of lactic acid bacteria, so we're fighting that, that acid very regularly. Um, but to me and my palate, it feels like it's a more sustainable beer, <laughs> one that is more drinkable. Um, I think, like, Texturally, I'm a real like textural drinker, so I'm thinking about acid and bitterness and body and all of these things together. And I, I think the most drinkable and the ones that I want to return to, 
kind of have this like tannic fruit skin quality to them where they're not like, you know, we actually have two beers on our wall right now, Orange Pet Cat and Lingua Franca and Lingua Franca Fruta. And both of those beers, you know, you could probably even get away with they're not even sour beer. They're kind of going into this like blended mixed culture beer where they do have acidity as a component, but it's not knocking you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. And it is more drinkable. You can get a nine ounce pour and enjoy that whole glass instead of working your way through it because the acid is, you know. So, yeah, I think it's, it, it, it is that. It's getting, trying to get to a place of like actually being able to drink a full glass of, what, of what's in front of you. <laughs> And with so much, and before we started recording, you were saying that uh, you, know, you want to sell everything out of your tap room here. Um, and so you want people to come and actually stay and have full glasses. And you want to have, I guess that's where drinkability comes in, uh, in, in a strong way as well, right? If, if you were a brewery where all you could do is come in and maybe have one, uh, and then your palate is wrecked or you, know, you just sort of like lost the taste for it, like that's not going to, it's just not a sustainable business model either. Yeah, right. I, I agree. I think, and I and I mean, I think sour beer is in. Uh, it, it's kind of in a <laughs> a cultural like point in time that no one can really get a handle on. Every brewery that I've come into contact in recent history that's making sour beer is kind of saying, "We don't even know where to go in this because our the sales on them have dropped so much." Yeah. So one, I think more people are producing them than ever, and people went all in. I mean, we were just, I just did a tour of the new uh, Russian River facility in Windsor, and the whole tour leads you to this like altar of the cool ship. And you walk through, the very end is like a barrel warehouse, and then it's like a church door, and you open the church door. And on our tour, Vinny was kind of like, yeah, we kind of planned this before sour beer sales dropped off. And now we're here and we're excited about it, but we're selling less mixed culture beer than ever. And forever, I mean, Russian River is the epitome of like oh, yeah. that. They're like held up in the highest esteem and they're still making these incredible beers, but they're just, you know, seeing that drop off. And I think, you know, not to go off on such a tangent, but, you know, there's bigger producers like the brewery and Rare Barrel that have committed thousands and thousands of barrels of sour beer to mm -hmm. sour beer and i just don't think that people's palates can sustain that much acid so you know <laughs> for us we at have, least it's sustain like sustainably yeah. like a yeah. bottle now and again yeah. isn't gonna you know yeah yeah but especially even as like i realize as i'm getting older as drinker as a drinker as well like it is you know i'm starting to get heartburn now like yeah. i'm starting to get some of these and there's some that'll really kind of you know, like knock you on your ass because of it, you know, not alcohol wise, but just like it beats you up. It's like those uh, TV commercials where the food starts attacking you. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like we need, you know, some bottles uh, going and, and, and beating folks up. Um, you know, to your point, even on uh, sales dropping or, you know, it, it, it being unknown, uh, Two Roads out in Connecticut has just, they're just about to open up their area too, which is going to be a full sour production facility. And I was talking to them for an article uh, that's in our brewing industry guide a, a couple of months ago. And they're saying, yeah, we have no idea. Like there's no real good sales data that says that this is a smart thing or it's not a smart thing. Uh, and we're sort of taking a gamble that like we hope it is, but it might not be. Like there's a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, when it comes to 
sales, especially of that. So I guess on, on the beers then that you're making, though, you also have the clean program. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, you were kind of touching on a point and I went on a tan- off on a tangent. Okay. Just the, the idea of like us selling direct to consumer. Yeah, right. And, yeah. I and the to... culture of that and how important that is. I mean, I always want to return to this topic because it, I think it's the heart of what we are as a company. It's like it is, to me, it is a win across the board in that as a business, you have better margins so we can actually survive in an incredibly competitive marketplace. The consumers get to interact directly with the producer, Mm -hmm. which is like awesome, you know, that is such a great thing. And then just like freshness and quality of beer. It doesn't get, the the supply chain doesn't get muddied up by distributors that don't know anything about your beer or, you know, retailers that don't care about it as much as you care about it. So it is the, the model that makes sense. And then, you know, that I think leads us to, you know, us wanting to uh, make beers that make sense in that model. So, you know, I, I probably drink more lager beer than I do of anything else. I'm, you know, very passionate about making lager beer and contributing to lager beer as a whole. Um, I think that I, I think about like geography and that, how that affects drinking. And I, I hope that we're making beers that fit our geography. And to me, Southern California is, it, you know, it's hot and sunshine and you should be drinking things that are, you know, crisp, snappy, bitter, have a little tinge of acidity, these things that like refresh you essentially. And so, you know, the, the areas of beer that we put the most amount of attention into is like, you know, lager beer and that's like Pilsner's and Hellas and, and, and then hoppy beer. And even the hoppy beer where we, 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 introduce lager and hoppy into the same category i think we're you know really like putting a lot of time and effort into making these kind of like new school lagers Mm -hmm. um and and then tons of and then we make ipa which i think is appropriate for our climate (laughs) i mean it's appropriate in craft beer in general i was gonna say uh, yeah that's want but yeah but i still think it's appropriate and then the mixed culture beer i think is appropriate so it's you know, we're making beers that both we're passionate about and that hopefully are appropriate for the geography that, that we live in. Um, and then then we're also making them that, yeah, people can belly up and sell lager or drink lager. I, I think that we are like beer geeks at heart, so we're making beer geeky beer, but we're so committed to lager beer and our consumers are have, have fully bought in. I mean, we're constantly have five, six, seven loggers on our board at any given time, and uh, we have no problem selling those. No problem at all. So, Where are you exploring with loggers these days? Like, where is, where, where are the, the touch points to, you know, where you're trying to, you know, figure out, like, what's next? Or is it just trying to refine classics? You know, like, what's your approach like when you're, when you're trying to create a new lager recipe, I guess, is the best way of... Um, phrasing kind of multifaceted it's 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 interesting because sometimes like we're, we try to touch on and innovate and and move sort of like beer forward kind of going back to that like evolution of things and evolving and mm-hmm. like looking forward um like one of the things i've been most excited about is we've been doing these like barrel fermented pilsners so you know i will say though it 
I have loved them and they don't sell at all. <laughs> and so it's like sometimes you, you touch on these worlds that are like really cool and they're unique and you know, maybe it's just not quite there yet. And we're still gonna continue to do that, but we're not gonna focus on that, those beers. Um, I think one thing that I have, has been kind of eye-opening in recent history as we've been trying to just get closer to the raw ingredients, like you know, more intentional with the hops that we're using and you know, trying to get as close to like, you know, actually doing selection and you know working with farmers and and that sort of thing and with german hops and the lots that we're getting we've just seen huge disparity of uh quality at least quality of what we're looking for so it's like we really like for more traditional pilsners to use like noble hops like tetanang holotau um Saphir is probably one of our favorites but when we're using those hops, we're seeing these massive disparity. It's like we'll get a lot of Saphir, and Saphir is probably my favorite German hop. What do you and, like about it? Uh, when it is good Saphir, which means it was probably picked at the right time and processed properly, you know, it's got this great floral, you know, citrus. We named one of our beers Pleasant Pills, and I think that name came from us describing Saphir. It just kind of has this like pleasantness to it as a whole. Um, but floral and citrus, I think, kind of like drive that okay. hop. Um, so, so when you get a good lot of it, yeah. Yeah, so I think ingredient selection is, is like a huge uh, kind of eye-opening experience in, in recent history. And we haven't even gotten to a place where we can go and do like German hop selection. But I think that that will help dictate the quality of our beer and the consistency of our lager program moving moving forward um. <clears throat> but having and having that access though i guess and the larger you are as a brewery uh the better access you have to some better ingredients as well and you know so like when you're fairly small uh like at your old place uh, or your original place i guess i should say like um you guys weren't necessarily you know first on a lot of people's lists when uh, uh, ingredient wise, but then, you know, when you start making more beer, obviously you, you can, you can get to that point. And, um, and then it also comes with time as well. Right. And forging those relationships. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, you're touching on a hot button for me Okay. <laughs> in that I, I, as a, as a small little brewery in a 500 square foot space, we were making eight or, eight or 900 barrels a year. And, you know, the intent was to, to really, like, uh, kind of know our raw ingredients and know where our ingredients are coming from. And I'll tell you what, it's next to impossible as a small brewer in that size to, uh, like, get inroads to be working with these, you know, brokers or growers. And it, it was incredibly frustrating to me. I mean, it, 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 it pissed me off that, like, I'm spending $40,000 a year on hops and I can't even like have any say in what I'm getting or how I get it or like these things. And, you know, as a small producer, it's like $40,000 is a lot of money to spend in a year on one ingredient. Yeah. And, but that's like, you know, small potatoes. So it's a, it's a really fascinating political game. And, you know, in this past year, I think we are getting on people's radar more. 
we're making a little bit more beer and we're <laughs> seeing more attention essentially and people willing to work with us. And, I, you know, I don't want to <clears throat> dwell on just the bad because now I feel very grateful and fortunate that we are making those inroads and, you know, being able to like talk to farmers and to select the actual hops that we're going to be using. But I, I think for all the, a lot of other small producers out there that are still in that same position, it's like, I, I hope that that culture can shift for people that want to be intentional. Mm -hmm. It's like if people want to go out of their way to like interact with their raw ingredients, I would hope that there's like a road to that <laughs> instead of just this huge machine of like, well, you order your grain from this spreadsheet of like grain suppliers and you order your hops from this spreadsheet and, and they arrive and that's what it is. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's kind of stupid to me. Like, yeah. It's like, we're, my life's dedicated to beer. We should be able to like pursue just relationships and, it takes a lot of time and effort. I'll, I'll say that to to sort of forge those relationships, and you know, we started uh, talking about it, and then we we jumped around uh, in a fun way. But um, one of the other business things that uh, that that comes up is self distribution, or you know, not necessarily getting into. Uh, I think earlier you called it like the rat race of uh, the three tiers. Um, you decided not to do that, right? You want to sell everything direct to consumer. I, I would say I'm a, a staunch self-distributor. <laughs> <laughs> I think that any small producer that gives up their distribution rights is, is giving up a big component of who, who and what they can be. Um, to me, it's like it, 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 if I'm saying that I want to sell beer direct to consumer over my bar, then I want to be able to have that same extension if we do sell some draft out to sell it direct to the bars that I think are going to care for it and that, and that, that, you know, we'll treat it properly. So you, you know, you sign up with the distributor and it feels like, yeah, I got my signing bonus or whatever it is. But if you're in it for the long run, that doesn't matter. What should matter is sort of the, the relationships that you're building with those retailers you know, we know every single person that we sell beer to and have a relationship and they represent it. They're representing us out at their tap room. Right. Essentially, that's how I feel. Right. Um, so, you know, a, a, as a small producer producing, you know, we'll probably produce 2000 barrels between our two uh, spots um, this year. Like there is not a hair on my body <laughs> that would even consider like going through a distributor. I think there's just too much lost. It's like they, you get lost in someone's portfolio and then the person at the bar is doing the same thing that I was just saying. They're just ordering your beer off of some spreadsheet and maybe because like they don't recognize it, they don't order it and then the beer's not fresh and there's a disconnect there. Um, we are small businesses, so we need to make money. You lose on margins. Sure. You know, you lose 30, 40% on margins. Um, and, you know, I know that that is a privileged position that I'm coming from because I, we are selling all of our beer and it is, you know, we've positioned ourselves and we've been able to just sell all of our beer immediately and other people aren't in that position. Sure. So that's probably why they sign up with a distributor. But I think that they're kind of going down a path where it's like they, 
have too much beer, so they're like, we got to sell all this beer, and then they get it into a distributor, and it fulfills an immediate need that we have too much beer, but that beer is essentially, they're not gaining momentum by getting it out of their cold box and into the distributor's cold box, and then, you know, they're, that's not going to, like, build momentum unless they can support that beer out on the marketplace. Right. And I'll tell you what, most small producers don't have bodies out there to build relationships with the retailers where all of the their beer is going. So I, I know I'm kind of rambling here. No, no, no. But I, I, I like I like the idea though of 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 the momentum though because you're right. You know, signing on doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to uh, you know keep kicking the can down the down the road. Um, but from your situation, how do you keep the momentum going? Uh, honestly, we, we, I think producing within your means, it's like, we have the ability to make more beer than we currently do. And that doesn't mean we should make more beer. <laughs> like it, it's the type of thing where my goal is not to like make as much beer and get it out there. It is to have good quality, fresh beer. And for me to for us to sell it direct to consumer or direct to retailer. And so, you know, it's managing your inventories so that you, like, stay on a good path. You know, yeah. our goal is pretty much, you know, hoppy beer should be drank within three weeks of us, like, kegging it off. And we try to get it, if we're selling a keg of beer out to a bar, we try to get it out within two days of us kegging it off. And that then sets the tone that people are experiencing our beer fresh, which is a competitive advantage as a small producer. It's something that we can do, is control our supply chain in that regard. So, you know, I think it's having some self-control in, in, like, in what you're producing so that you actually, like, do it based on demand rather than just purely, like, well, we got 10 fermenters, we might as well fill them all up and, like, yeah. But th- th- there's a certain amount of mindfulness that comes with with your approach that I, I think with beer and, the, and this beer industry, it's been go, 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 fast, fast, fast. And then, you know, sometimes people stop and they look around and they say, my God, how did I get here? Um, but it almost sounds like from your approach, like it's you're aware of it every step of the way. And that I, I, I think in a lot of ways, that's sort of like your beers as well. Like it, it kind of comes back to the overall recipes that you guys are making, where they are very deliberate, where they are very thoughtful. Um, you know, there's creativity behind them, but like you sort of wait for the inspiration to strike as opposed to just start throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're touching on something that is like the, the idea of having self-control. Um, it's really hard. I, I like, I mean, I say it from a firsthand perspective. It's like, you know, we went from that 500 square foot space to this now 9,000 square foot space. And as you're building it out, it's always like, well, we're, we're, we're here. We might as well like go a little bigger. We might as well make a little more. It's like, we're already like going down that path. And it, it, it I feel like the business kind of starts to take a momentum of itself <laughs> Not just us driving the momentum. It's like, okay, now there's 30 employees and all these employees are kind of like things just start kind of snowballing forward. And it's really hard to sort of like say, no, we're going we're gonna to pause. All right, we're going to brew. We're not going to brew more beer. Like, which sounds stupid. Like it sounds like that would just naturally happen. But it, 
something about like <laughs> the efficient, it's like I, I like efficiency a lot as well <laughs> in addition to these things and that my mind for wanting things to be efficient also makes you want to kind of like maximize your capacity and it's like, well, we have empty oak barrels. We might as well fill the empty oak barrels and it's like, well, maybe that's not the best path for our business. Maybe we should just sit on these barrels for a little bit because we already have too much mixed culture stuff sort of in the works and, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. So it, self-control is a hard thing as a human being. <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't, I think when you're, you have a company that is like, you know, growing and has potential to growth, it's like we got a good brand and people want our beer. Then it's like, well, why shouldn't we just be making more? Or like, but it, I think that it's important to have that restraint and to not just keep with that snowball. <laughs> and it also sort of, you know, safeguards you for whatever could potentially happen in the industry going forward. Yes. I mean, I think that there, <laughs> there are, there's so many breweries out there right now. It is so competitive. And even in L.A., you would think like, okay, there's 12 million or 13 million people and there's only 70 breweries. And of those 70 breweries, maybe like nobody's making over 15,000 barrels. And maybe only like five breweries are making more than 5,000 barrels. So the, the volume of like independent breweries brewing beer in LA is, is not very much at all. And, but you want to know what? It, it still feels really competitive here. It is like, it's hard, it, you know? And so I think that that, yeah, I think that there, we're at a, a point in time with beer I mean, we're, we've seen in the past month or two like yeah. some awesome breweries in San Diego close. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of been a real gut check. Two of them, uh, Council and Toolbox, yeah. were ones that opened right at the time that we opened. And for me, it was kind of like, oh, shit. Like, we're right in that same window of time that they are. And I regard, you know, I regarded their beers well. So it, it's a, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. Do you have a hope for beer? Uh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> a hope for beer. It's probably a, a big convoluted answer here, but um, I, my hope would be that more breweries would stay within their means, you know? That it's like, I think that it, they become these really growing growth businesses and it's hard to like, stop that or to slow it down um but i think that like consumers will have better experiences if there's more like local producers that are thoughtful that want to just sell beer to their local market and i think you can succeed and i think you can make money this way sure it's it's not just a and purely, a nice living too yeah. I mean, yeah it's like i i'm not like being blind to the fact that i'm running a business and that it's like yeah i want to provide for my family and you know whatever but I think that that's the model that's going to probably succeed moving forward because I think consumers are getting more savvy to freshness. And, you know, there's a lot of not fresh beer out on grocery store shelves. And so my hope is just that people, I guess, you know, that there's breweries that stay within their means and don't grow too much. <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave it. Bob Coons of Highland Park Brewing Company. Thanks for having me here in your brand new tap room. I encourage anybody who's coming into L.A., uh, even just for an afternoon, that this is the place to go. Uh, while away, uh, 
a little bit of time, go through the tap lists. Uh, I really, I, it's it's a really cool space. Uh, so thanks for having us here today. Well, it's my honor to be on. I appreciate it. And you, listener, if you have questions for me, guests you'd like to hear, topics you'd like addressed, you can reach out to me directly at John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And you should also go to beerandbrewing.com. There you can subscribe to the magazine. Please, please, please subscribe to the magazine. Uh, But you can also find great content, uh, homebrew recipes, things about our craft beer scene, and insight from brewers like Bob. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks so much to this episode's sponsors. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Join the community of homebrewers at the American Homebrewers Association. Bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG and craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.